Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles this morning to the 11th chapter of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 15, our text this morning. In this section of scripture, Paul is returning to the question of the nation of Israel. The overarching question of chapters 9 through 11 is, has God failed? Because most Jews rejected Jesus, there was an understanding that God's word had failed or God's promises are failed. Uh, Paul gives numerous reasons why this is not the case in these three chapters, while admitting that God has set aside the blessings of Israel for the moment. However, here in chapter 11, Paul makes it clear that this setting aside, remember, is based on three words. It is only partial, partial. There is, there's a remnant of faithful Jews in every generation. Secondly, it is temporary, which means that God still yet has a plan for Israel in the future. And most importantly to most of us, it has a purpose. That is history. All things that happen in the world are part of God's greater design. And here is where we want to camp out this morning to answer the question, what is the meaning or what is the purpose for God's setting aside of Israel temporarily and partially? And that question is answered, I think, in our text. Let's read Romans 11, beginning in verse 11 now. Paul says, I say then... They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. For if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen, and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this his word. So Paul begins with a question, as he often does when he starts a new thought. He says, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Now, anytime a word begins with plural pronoun they, we need to know what its antecedent is. And of course, the antecedent of they is Israel. He's speaking and has been for three chapters of his homeland, national Israel. Now, we can compare that back to Romans chapter 11, verse 1, where he says, I say then, God has not rejected his people. Has he? May it never be. He says the same thing with two different rhetorical questions. And the answer is the same in both cases. No, God has not rejected Israel ultimately and forever. Remember, Paul is turning that screwdriver. One more rotation. And so the way we might say it is, has God washed his hands of Israel totally? And of course, the answer comes back, of course not. You already know the answer if you've been paying attention for the last year and a half. Paul loves using that rhetorical device to introduce a thought. And almost all of these rhetorical questions have the same answer here in Romans, which is megenoito in the Greek. God forbid, perish the thought, May it never be. Now, you know that I was living in very, very rural Mississippi before I moved to Dallas-Fort Worth area in 1999 to attend Southwestern Seminary. 
Specifically, I was living in a region of Mississippi called the Piney Woods. Now, you don't have to be a geographer to figure out why it's called the Piney Woods. Uh, there were pine trees everywhere. 200 years ago, settlers came to that region and with hand tools and horses, cleared the virgin hardwood timber and pulled up the stumps and divided up the land and they started farming. And in generations that followed, fewer and fewer people could make a living on a few acres and many sent their children to college and they didn't come back. And they found that the best return on their money was fast growing pine trees that could grow to maturity in 25 to 30 years. So the fields once more were turned from fields into forest. And predictably, so many people planted pine trees that there now is an oversupply and the prices of timber are depressed. But there was a day that I can remember in my childhood when prices were still high. And there emerged a certain class of laborer in that part of the world who could make a decent living with an old truck and a chainsaw hauling pulpwood to the local mills. And it was difficult and dangerous work. And there was an older gentleman in our town that was a pulpwood hauler and he was uh, known for being frugal. After all, his money came hard. And we had a local store that catered to these workers, and they often stopped in around noontime for a brief lunch break. And the story is that one day this frugal pulpwood hauler stopped in for his lunch, which consisted most days of a can of cold Vienna sausages and some saltine crackers. And having paid the clerk for his lunch, he was in a hurry to get back to work, so he ripped open the crackers and popped open the can of sausages placed a sausage on the saltine and kept walking only to drop both of them in the floor. And looking around and seeing his peers watching to see what he would do next, he reached down, picked up the cracker in one hand and the sausage in the other, blew both of them off gently, placed the sausage back on top of the cracker, popped it in his mouth and said, Oh, little cracker, you just stumbled. You didn't fall. And I think of that story every time I read this section of Scripture. Israel has stumbled, but they have not fallen ultimately. That is, God still has a plan for them. Well, in our text today, God is saying that specifically to Israel. You have not stumbled so as to fall and not be able to get up. Paul is about to show us how God can take even sinful unbelief and use it for His glory. We want to see that in three points this morning. First, let's see the unexpected result of sin in verse 11. Sin often has an unexpected result. You've probably seen that in your own life. You'll see it today in the life of Israel. It says in verse 11, but by their transgression, a transgression is a sin, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now you remember when God made his covenant with Abraham way back in the book of Genesis, he promised to give Abraham the land to give him, to make him a great nation. He was going to multiply his descendants. And why? That through them all the nations of the world would be blessed. Quite simply, Israel was blessed to be a blessing to the nations. However, as Paul indicates numerous times here in Romans, they failed miserably most of the time at that mission. Now if you'll turn back quickly to Romans chapter 2, uh, towards the front of this book. In Romans chapter 2, you'll see what I mean. Look at verse 17. Romans 2.17, Paul is speaking now to Jewish people. Now he's laid bare the Gentiles as guilty before God. And remember, we can imagine those Jewish people nodding their head, yes, give it to them, Paul, tell them that they're no good. And then he turns to his Jewish contemporaries in verse 17. He says, but if you bear the name Jew 
and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and the truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you not commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through the breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's quite an indictment that Paul is making against his Jewish peers. He says, God set you aside and he made a covenant with you and he blessed you that the world might know him through you. But instead, because of your disobedience and your hypocrisy, your lack of love and compassion, the name of God is blasphemed. It's a curse word among the Gentiles. I can't think of a sharper or a more stinging rebuke you could say to anyone. You remember the Lord Jesus came on the scene and those representatives of the old school Judaism, the Pharisees, those were the ones who received his harshest rebukes and criticisms, called them a brood of vipers, called them blind leaders of the blind, hypocrites. But you remember Romans chapter 8, 28, I trust. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Throughout the book of Romans, we've seen God's sovereignty on display. It may look for, to an outsider looking in that God's lost control of the situation. It may look like his promises have failed, but Paul is assuring us that everything is working out just in accordance with his plan and will. And God is greater than our sin, isn't he? That's what Romans 8, 28 is all about. God is able to work all things, including our own disobedience, together for His good and glory. You may be asking, well, Pastor, what possible good could the setting aside of Israel temporarily and partially be to the world? Well, Paul tells us. He says it in an economy of words in one sentence. He says, because of that, salvation has come to the Gentiles. You remember that most Jews in Paul's day viewed Gentiles as fuel for hell's flames rather than potential, of God, potential trophies of God's grace. Now, there's hints throughout the Bible that the Jews missed that God loved Gentiles. Paul calls this idea that Jesus died for the whole world a mystery. The Greek word mysterion, something hidden in the past that's now revealed in the present. And Paul counted it a great honor and a stewardship to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He said, I magnify that office. But there's hints throughout the Bible that God had a plan for the Gentiles. For example, we've talked about more than once in this series the story of Jonah, who was sent to the Ninevites, Assyrians, Gentiles, the most wicked and brutal of people in the world of that day. And yet God had compassion on them. And when they repented, he forgave them and his judgment was assuaged. What about uh, individuals, Gentiles in the Old Testament? Naaman was clear, cleansed of leprosy. There, there's numerous examples in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus. Uh, in fact, let's, let's look at this. Turn to Matthew chapter 15. I was reading this this week. Matthew chapter 15. There's an interaction with Jesus and a Gentile woman that makes a lot of us uncomfortable because it doesn't sound like something we picture Jesus would say. 
But of course, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was teaching a great lesson about God's love for Gentiles through it. And so Jesus had been healing in Judea among Jewish people. And he withdrew from there and he went to a Gentile region in the district of Tyre and Sidon. Let's read Matthew 15, 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman, that's a Gentile, from that region came out and began to cry out saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. He just ignored her. And his disciples came and implored him saying, Send her away. She keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now Jesus seems to be affirming what the Jews believed. That the gospel wasn't for Gentiles. It was only for Jews. But, but read on. But she came and began to bow down before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus ups the ante. Not only does he ignore her, not only says the gospel's not for you, he says, you're a dog. He talks to her the same way the others did. And remember, he's got a plan here. Verse 27, but she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. See, what Jesus was doing was for the benefit of his disciples, I take it, not just for that lady. He was showing them that he loved Gentiles as well. Now, here's the surprising thing that God has done even through and even though the Jews rejected their Messiah in large, here's the surprising thing that they didn't expect. Through that temporary setting aside, through their unbelief and rejection, God has worked it for good to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Now, I read a passage of Scripture last week emphasizing another point, but I want to read that same passage again to emphasize this point, that because the Jews rejected Jesus, joy came to the Gentiles. It's Acts 13, 42. You don't have to turn there. But remember that Paul and Barnabas were on their missionary journey. And verse 42 says, as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging. Now, that's Jewish people. Remember, they always went to the synagogue first when they came to a new city. And if the people wanted to hear them again, they'd invite them back. And so they went on a Sabbath, a Saturday. The people kept begging them Come back the next week. So they did. Verse 43. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up. That is the next week. Many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. Who speaking to them were urging them to continue in the grace of God. And then the next Sabbath nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. That's Jew and Gentile alike. But when the Jews saw the crowds they were filled with what? Jealousy. And began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Now, just a week earlier, many of them had said, yeah, that sounds reasonable. Come back, we'll hear it again. But when they saw the Gentiles responding to it, they turned on Paul and Barnabas. And they said, this isn't true. Couldn't be true if the Gentiles are receiving it. And they were blaspheming. Verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, speaking to the Jews, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Now hear this. When the Gentiles heard this, that is that the gospel was for them, they began rejoicing. 
and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many has been appointed to eternal life, believed, and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. So through the Jews' rejection, joy and salvation came to the Gentiles. That's what it means that God is able to work all things together for good, for the glory of God. So there you have it. One of God's purposes in setting aside Israel temporarily and partially is to bring untold millions of Gentiles into the family of faith. Praise God if you're a Gentile here today, right? Thank the Lord that the gospel is for us as well as for the Jew. Now there's a second point to be made here, again from verse 11, and that now that Gentiles have been brought into the family of faith, there is a clear mission for Gentile believers. Again, back in Romans 11, 11. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles, comma, to make them jealous. So the mission of Gentiles is to live such lives that it makes Jews jealous. If you're jealous of something, you want it, right? Back in Acts 13, the Jews were jealous of the attention that Paul and Barnabas were getting. And we are to live our lives so that Jewish people are jealous of our closeness with God, I take it. So how are we Gentile believers to make Jewish unbelievers jealous? Well, I said it, through our close walk with the Lord, we are to provoke them to desire for the same. Remember I said last week that different cultures and nations are known for certain pursuits. The Greeks were known for their pursuit of wisdom. Americans are known for their pursuit of liberty and freedom and independence. The Jews were known for their pursuit of right standing with God. The problem was, by and large, they pursued it through works righteousness, a road which does not lead to heaven, but rather to hell. And so when they see someone who does have right standing with God, they should want it. So let me ask you a question. Given what you know about world history since the time of Christ, how are we Christians doing at that? How are we doing at living such close lives with God that we are provoking our Jewish friends and neighbors to jealousy? I would say very poorly. Historically, not well. I remember sitting in a history class in college and the very distinguished professor announced on the first day that, quote, Christians are responsible for many of the most profound acts of violence and hatred in world history, end quote. And as a, a Christian growing in my faith, I was embarrassed and mortified by that, but I knew exactly what he meant. Now, I wanted to say, well, those people weren't true Christians if they were known for that, because the scripture says, by their fruit you will know them. They might have named the name of Christ. Their, their nations might have been led by quote-unquote Christian leaders, but that's not Christ-like behavior, and of course it's not. And yet, we have to admit that there is still to this day anti-Semitism, which is rampant even in among historically Christian nations, and hatred for Jewish people. And brothers, it ought not to be. And as I look around this room, even in the 20th century, some in this room remember the most tragic Holocaust of the 20th century took place in a nation in Germany, that just in a few hundred years earlier had seen the great reformation that we celebrate from this pulpit regularly. And just in our lifetime, some of your lifetime, six million Jews were murdered. We're not provoking them to jealousy in mass. 
There are a few in every generation who are influenced by godly Christians who come to saving faith. But it's not been this great in-gathering that Paul is going to predict here. Well, what about at an individual level? Let me ask you. Let's get very specific. How are you and I impacting our Jewish friends and neighbor? Right here in the Keller area, you say, well, there aren't any neighbors of mine who are Jewish. Yes, there are. Watch for the clues. I was driving through a neighborhood yesterday, and I saw the Star of David waving on a flagpole. Christmas time, you can see blue lights. You can interact with your neighbors and ask about their religious and cultural background. Many will be happy to share with you. Yes, we do have many Jewish neighbors here. How are we interacting with them? I would encourage us all to get to know them. Invite them to our homes this holiday season. Treat them with dignity and kindness and respect. And you never know what the Lord might do. Well, there's one last point before we go. Never forget that God has a glorious future yet for Israel. Remember those words that Paul uses or those themes that Paul uses to describe Israel's setting aside. Paul never denies that God has set aside the blessings of Israel, but he says they're temporary. They don't last forever. They are partial, meaning there's always some faithful Jews in every epic of history, and they have a purpose, which is what we've been studying. The primary purpose of God's temporarily and partially setting aside of Israel is so that the fullness of the Gentiles, in fact, Paul's going to say that later on in this chapter, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then we're going to see a revival of Jewish people. Now look at verse 12. Thirdly, a glorious future for Israel. He says, now, now that I've said that, if their transgression, that's Israel's, if their sin is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. But if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now there's some important words and phrases here that you need to set in your mind side by side. You won't understand these verses. One phrase is the transgression of Israel. Now what is the transgression of Israel? Well, it's their failure to believe on their Messiah, right? That's the ultimate disobedience. That they had the prophets, they had the covenants, they had the patriarchs, they had all the promises, and yet when their Messiah came, by and large, they rejected him. And yet Paul says their transgression, which is their own fault, and it's sin, he's not justifying it, he said it resulted, though, in the riches of the Gentiles. Now, he's not talking about monetary wealth, materialism. He's talking about the gospel, right? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? The good news, which is the most valuable commodity in the universe, came to the Gentiles by and through the rejection of Israel. And then there's another phrase. He says, the failure of Israel. That is their failure, I take it, to bow their knee to their Messiah has again resulted in the riches for the Gentiles. The word world and Gentiles there are synonymous. He's just emphasizing a point by doubling it. 
Remember, in the Jewish mind, there's two categories of people, Gentiles and Jews. There's God's people, and then there's the world. So Paul says their rejection has resulted in to the benefit and the riches of Gentiles. Then he uses this phrase, but instead, his love for Israel and his Jewish brethren was never far from the top of Paul's mind. And Paul says, I magnify my office. Paul recognized God had given him a specific calling to take the gospel to the Gentiles. That's why he wanted to go to Spain. He wanted to go all over the world. He wasn't embarrassed by that calling. He says, I magnify it. I relish it. But in his heart of hearts, he always came back to what he said here twice in these three chapters. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is what? Their salvation. He was willing to be a curse from God himself if his kinsmen, his peers, his Jewish family would come to faith. He delighted in the thought that through his converting some Gentiles to the gospel, that that might provoke his Jewish peers to jealousy that they too would seek salvation through Christ. And so then he says in verse 15, in a different way, he says, the rejection by Israel has resulted in the reconciliation of Gentiles to God. And their acceptance, he says, will be like life from the dead. Look, he says, if it's a boon to humanity that through God setting them aside, he was pleased for untold millions of Gentiles to be saved, how much a greater boon to the world it would it be if millions of Jews would be saved? He compares it to life from the dead. Now, riches is great, okay? Riches are great. He's not putting that down. He's just saying it's small compared to life from the dead. I, I think he's referring here probably to the book of Ezekiel, which I understand some of you are studying. Probably the most famous passage in the book of Ezekiel is the vision that God gave the prophet Ezekiel about the valley of the dry bones. Remember, he showed Ezekiel, the prophet, this valley full of dead men. And we know they were dead because they weren't just corpses, they were skeletons. And not just skeletons, but dried up skeletons. Any third grader could see that these people were not sick, but dead. And God asked Ezekiel in this vision a question. He said, Ezekiel, can these bones what? Live. Can these bones live? <laughs> well, Ezekiel was not a doctor. He didn't want to speak out of turn. And so he says, God, thou knowest. <laughs> he, he was smart enough not to answer. And then God began to do something in that vision. And those bones began to rattle around. And uh, those bones began to come together supernaturally and miraculously. And the foot bone was connected to the ankle bone. And the ankle bone connected to the leg bone. And the leg bone connected to the thigh bone. And the thigh bone connected to the ham bone. <laughs> and, and, and away it went, right? And next thing you know, this great army of individuals was standing alive. And what was that image? It's what God said about the rich man. With man it is impossible. With God, what? All things are possible. And I hope 
you want to hear the rest of that story, we don't have time to tell it today. Because here in the rest of chapter 11, Paul begins to unveil what God's future plan for Israel is. And let me just say this. It is wonderful, it is miraculous, and it's already coming about in some of your lifetimes. Are you interested in that? If you are, you'll come back next two weeks, okay? Let's pray together and be dismissed. Lord, thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that, uh, that you're more powerful than sin. You're not the author of sin. We can't blame you when we sin, either individually or, or nationally. But yet, according to Paul's word in Romans 8, 28, you're able to work all things together for good. And that includes our sinfulness, our transgression. And you use the sinful disobedience of Israel to bring about an incredible ingathering of people that many of them thought were unreachable. Father, there may be people in our sphere of influence that we've written off as unreachable or too far gone. And yet the same God who can cause dried skeletal remains to live again can save the lost. So Father, I pray you would encourage us in evangelism. Maybe when we've grown cold or, or weary, given up to, to redouble our efforts in the, in the year ahead. Father, I pray for the Jewish citizens of this nation and world, and specifically for this very area. Help us, Lord, to live such lives of fruitfulness and blessedness and closeness with God that they would be provoked to jealousy. Lord, that they would see in us a relationship that they are lacking that they would want it. And Father, may we be ready, as the scripture says, always to give a reason for the hope that is within us. So Father, we would pray for a great ingathering of souls, both Jewish, Jews and Jews in our community, Jews and Gentiles in our community. Father, I, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for Paul, who was so faithful to carry it. Pray, Lord, that we would now in our generation take that great commission and seek to fulfill it if possible in our own lifetime and father we look forward to the second coming of jesus and we believe it is soon and so we say with christians for two thousand years lord jesus come that would be our prayer that jesus would come soon and father until he does may we be found faithful and so do what he calls us to do. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.